morning. My name is Ginger Mayfield, um, and I'm glad to be with you today. Um, so I first heard the hymn, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, when I was a freshman in college. I attended a fellowship group that um, used many of the hymns that had been reworked by Kevin Twitt and the folks at Indelible Grace. So um, this hymn was never sung in any of the churches that I attended growing up, and I was unfamiliar with the hymn and the author, George Matheson. So George Matheson lived in Scotland um, in the mid to late 1800s, and um, sometime during his studies, he, um, his eyesight deteriorated into total blindness. Um, or near total blindness, um, and he was engaged at the time, and his fiance called off their engagement, um, citing that she couldn't go through life with a blind man, and he was studying theology at the time. Um, he remained unmarried, and um, for the next 20 years after this, he was dependent on the love and devotion of his sister, who um, helped him in his personal and his professional life. Um, she learned Greek, Hebrew, and Latin to help him. She read him scripture, which he would memorize. Um, she transcribed his dictations of sermons and other writings. Um, so they had a very close relationship. And um, when he was 40, his um, sister was engaged to be married. And um, he wrote the hymn, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, on the night of his sister's wedding. So... Everything I just told you, um, I had heard before, but um, or I learned before. But um, since this pandemic has started, I actually um, was led through um, Carrie Willard's devotion on hymns to Google more about this, and I found what George Matheson actually had to say himself about the night that he wrote this hymn, and I want to read that to you. Um, so, this is what he said. My hymn was composed in the manse of Anellen on the evening of the 6th of June, 1882, when I was 40 years of age. I was alone in the manse at that time. It was the night of my sister's marriage, and the rest of the family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something happened to me, which was known only to myself, and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression of having it dictated to me by some inward voice rather than of working it out myself. I am quite sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes and equally sure that it never received at my hands any retouching or correction. I have no natural gift of rhythm. All the other verses I've ever written are manufactured articles. This came like a day spring from on high. So what really struck me when I read this was where he says, something happened to me, which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. I don't know anyone, if they are being honest, that doesn't have at least one thing known only to them that causes them deep pain. This could be a rejection, a fear, a deep regret, an abuse, an unanswered question. I found this to be universally true before the pandemic. I think it's true during the pandemic, and I think it'll be true long after the pandemic. So for me, as the weeks roll on and my pre 
COVID-19 existence seems farther and farther away, I've started to notice a new pattern emerging. Um, well, I don't actually think it's a new pattern. I think it is a new awareness of an old pattern. And I'm talking about my tendency to engage in comparative suffering. In Mockingbird speak, comparative suffering is the idea that even our pain and suffering are not immune from scorekeeping. That is to say, we rank and compare our suffering based on what we know about another person's. In fact, in this time of global devastation, I've noticed that I don't actually even need the particular details of another person's circumstances to engage in this. I know this because of the frequency with which I say to myself, Ginger, things could be so much worse for you right now. So when I first started noticing this tendency that I have to do this, I really wanted to believe that it was a commendable habit, that it proved that I was grateful or that I had not lost perspective. So weeks have stretched into months now, and this pattern of comparative suffering has been stunningly insufficient to comfort me in the face of some scary personal circumstances it has been insufficient to will me into being more grateful. It has been insufficient to help me, um, like Goldilocks, find that ever-elusive, just-right amount of perspective that will make me feel okay about myself and my response to the chaos of our world right now. Um, and this is, of course, because comparative suffering, not unlike my pre-pandemic busyness and obsession with control is ultimately just another effort to earn my own righteousness. I know that astute pastors and counselors have long identified and noted the temptation to compare our suffering to another's in a bid to distract ourselves from our own pain and the questions that lurk behind it. Um, Brene Brown can be credited with naming and explaining comparative suffering on a larger stage. Her hypothesis is that um, comparative suffering is born out of fear and scarcity and our belief that empathy is a finite resource. So I think this explanation is helpful, but it feels incomplete to me because I know that I've experienced many times over the limits of human empathy in myself and in others. And what about the fact that oftentimes, like George Matheson, our deepest pains are known only to us and hidden from other people, even those closest to us. Um, human empathy cannot break in there. Not to mention, if at least some of my suffering is directly related to things I have done things I haven't done, but know I should have done, things I can't stop doing or can't start doing, then my only hope cannot be human empathy because as powerful as it can be when we have the opportunity to experience it, human empathy cannot give us absolution for sin. Absolution is only given to us through the cross of Jesus and the joy that comes with the reminder of the completeness of Christ's work seeks us out often in times of great suffering. We read this in George Matheson's account of that night of June eight, in 1882 and in the lyrics of his hymn. So here's what he writes in the third verse of the hymn. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. 
I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. So these words refer to Genesis 9, where God tells Noah, this is the sign of the covenant between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The Hebrew word used here for what we know to be a rainbow is the same word for a battle bow or a bow that is used to deploy an arrow with the intent to injure or kill. God is promising here that the total annihilation that his wrath can bring is no longer aimed at me and it's no longer aimed at you. When he hangs his bow in the cloud in Genesis, he's not laying down his weapon in peace because the arrow is now pointed at heaven and it is let loose on Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. Christ was forsaken and destroyed on the cross in my place. And because of this perfect and complete offering on my behalf, my sufferings and my sins will not lead to my abandonment. I can feel pain, even overwhelming pain in this life. But as George Matheson reminds us, God's promises are not in vain. And as a Christian, I can rest in the promise that God will never destroy me or abandon me. If you, um, this morning, like Charles Wesley, another hymn writer, have ever asked, um, depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? The answer is yes, because of Christ's substitution for you on the cross. Um, you do not need to fear scarcity when it comes to God's love for you. I hope you have a good day and thank you so much.